Today's reading is Luke 1, 67 through 80. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Bless the Lord of God of Israel, because he has come to help and has delivered his people. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in his servant David's house, just as he said through the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. He has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the solemn pledge he has made to our ancestor Abraham. He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell his people to be saved through their forgiveness of their sins. Because of the God's deep compassion, the dawns from the heavens will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadows of death, to guide us on the path of peace. The child grew up becoming strong in character. He was in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest students, one through fourth graders, you can head to the lobby and find your teachers. The rest of you may be seated. It hits me right here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us this morning as we, as we turn to, to receive from, from what God has to say. And I, I think I say this often, but preaching is a tricky thing because um, at, you can do a lot of work or not, uh, but you could do a lot of work and at the end of the day, if God in his spirit doesn't meet what we're hearing or what's being said, it's just words. And we don't need to just, we don't need words. We need like the life of God. Um, we need the voice of God to speak to us, to surprise us. So that's my prayer, that, that we would be surprised by God and be pointed toward his son Jesus. So pray with me. God, you are the one who promises to speak. You are the God who has been, is now, will continue to be faithful. And yet we need some of those tangible experiences, stories of your faithfulness. Thank you for Ursula's story of your faithfulness. Thank you for these songs that we sing that are also stories of your faithfulness and can be as we sing them to one another. Thank you, God, for that. As we turn to your word, I ask that you would help us to be people who are able to receive what it is you have for us, that you'd help me to receive what it is you have for me, that you'd help me to say what you have to say, that somehow, God, together, that as your church, we would be people who are willing to hear a word from you. So help us put away fear, tear down those walls of self-protection, Help us be people who are open. Thank you for being faithful to meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Will earlier, he, was say, he, he started the service by talking about how we are distracted, or, or he was distracted. And I was sitting in my chair thinking like, I actually feel fine. And then I was like, oh shoot, where's my Bible? I left my Bible in the car, so I had to run out and get it. So <laughs> I got you, Will, you're right. Um, so we're still, in the, we're still in the book of Luke. We're actually still in chapter one. Um, and we're making our way through it. It's, it's been a wonderful journey. And this morning we're going to talk about Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah's song. What is fascinating to me and why we are still in the first chapter is because Luke can't really tell this story, or at least begin to tell the story, without interrupting the narrative with these songs. Which is so fascinating to me because it could be the case that, I I can't even remember how many verses, like at least 20, probably 25 verses, are just these interruptions in time with these words from Mary, with these words from Zechariah that are somehow trying to transcend the narrative to help us be pulled out of the story to get this sense of, of how everything is connected. How is this story, what God is doing in the person of Jesus, in the birth of Jesus, which we will see in this birth of John, which we are gonna look at this morning, how is that all connected to this larger thing that God is doing? And music helps us get a sense of of something feeling or being bigger than what is being portrayed. Of course, I think of soundtracks or I think of music in movies or in shows. There are these moments in these narrative um, devices where the perfectly placed song makes a moment feel much more rich and full and deeper than it would otherwise. And I'd be curious to hear what some of your favorite moments of music would be, let's say, in film. Some for me, I think of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. It it opens with public enemies fight the power. All of a sudden, this movie becomes so much bigger and larger because of this insertion of this music. I think of, I love the movie Say Anything. Huh, anyone? Yeah, Gen Xers, yeah, I'm not one, but I, I'm with you here. Uh, so Say Anything is this, mo- this movie where Lloyd Dobler, right, he holds up this, this, this thing that's called a boombox, because he can, to, to the girl that he loves, and all he plays is Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes, because that's, he doesn't need to say anything else. He can't let this music do the work. Right? We have these moments in Guardians of the Galaxy, we're hooked on a feeling, right? All of a sudden, it brings you into the story, and you get this sense of what's going on. Not just says something about this movie that you're about to watch, but also this character who's somehow being pulled into this larger narrative, but is connected to his mother through music. I think of Magnolia, Amy Mann's song, Wise Up, where all of a sudden, these characters, all of us, they just sing. You're watching this this movie with all of these characters, but then it becomes this musical for this very brief period of time. Hamilton, which has taken the world by storm, which is something that my family, the soundtrack, we listen to it over and over and over again. That in and of itself, in its entirety, is an example of how music helps one recognize the weight or at least reconsider historical facts and narrative in a much deeper and larger way. So here we are, Luke, wanting to tell the story about Jesus, about the birth of John, and he can't help but insert a song. 
And so we're going to take a look at this song from Zechariah. But first, it doesn't begin there. It really begins with the birth of John the Baptist. So if you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Toward the end, if somebody can shout out the page number in the blue Bibles, that'd be helpful. 856. Thank you so much. And we're going to look at this story, the birth of John. So 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. This is verse 57. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. Now, stop right here. There's this, this, this word, they. Who is or who are they in this narrative? We're not quite sure. We think it's probably these neighbors, maybe these relatives that are connected, but they all go, which is customary on the eighth day, to circumcise this male child, and they were going to name him. And they wanted, they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother, Elizabeth, said, no, he's to be called John. We know why he's to be called John, because both Zechariah and Elizabeth were met by an angel saying who this son would be and what his name would be. And these these people are astounded, but none of your relatives have this name, verse 61. In 62, then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. Now remember, Zechariah cannot speak, because when he was met with by the angel and he was told that this was going to happen, Zechariah responded with something less than trust and faith. And so his plight was to be silent for the rest of, of this time as, as Elizabeth was getting ready to give birth to John. So he motioned for something to write with. And he wrote, his name is John. And then all of them were amazed. And then immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was freed and he began to speak, praising God. Verse 65, fear came over all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, what then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. So we have Zechariah who can now speak, and he's been silent for nine months, unable to talk. And yes, that can be seen as, as some sort of punishment, but also perhaps a pretty big gift. That here Zechariah has been given to be quiet and to attend and to sort of make sense of what is happening in light of the greater story of Israel. And this prophecy, this song that we get, is Zechariah making some pretty significant dots for all of us, the readers, for the people who are listening. So verse 67, then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. So I want to pause right here because this song, all of a sudden what Zechariah is doing by 
by singing this song and by Luke inserting this, this prophecy is pulling us out to see the greater connections that is being made between what is happening in the birth of this son named John and the story of Israel. And one of the primary things that we see in what Zechari- Zechariah is wanting to communicate is about this God of mercy. Mercy shows up time and time again in this narrative and also in Mary's song. In Luke 1.50, Mary says, His mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And then at the beginning, of, of the, in the birth of John, it says that the Lord has shown great mercy to Elizabeth. And then again in 72, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. And then again in 78, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. So Zechariah is wanting to pull us out, or at least Luke through Zechariah is wanting to pull us out and to show us and help us see this God who is defined by mercy. So there are three aspects of God's mercy that I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about God's sovereign mercy, God's redemptive mercy, and God's guiding mercy. So God's sovereign mercy, redemptive mercy, and his guiding mercy. And so one of the things to know, and this often happens in, in the music or in the songs of, of the Bible, is that they're constantly pulling from other places. What Zechariah does is he pulls from so many other psalms, actually, or so many other prophecies, other ways that the, that the people of God are trying to make sense of what's happening throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And we're going to look at some of those things this morning, because in order to understand what Zechariah is doing, we need to understand why he's connecting these dots, and why, a big reason why, is to talk about this God who is merciful. First, in the way that he is sovereign. So what Zechariah is doing is he's saying, look at this God who is sovereign over history. What do we mean by that? We mean by this God who is over history, that God is working out history for his good and for the good of the world and for what he's created. That God isn't somehow just pulling strings necessarily, but that God is the one who is in his infinite mercy and compassion and tenderness wanting to do reverse Tetris, which I love that image in your psalm. In this sense of of wanting to make things right. And the way that God does that through history is by remembering, by remembering the covenant that he's made to the people of Israel. Again, verse 72. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. So there's this sense in which God is working history out for his good and for the good of creation. And this is reminiscent of Psalm 106. Now, it's the psalm of the people of Israel and their history with God, this history that includes both God's 
God's redemption and salvation, but also this history that's a little bit dark where Israel continually rebels and responds with something less than faith and obedience. And it's this over, God does this, but then the people do this, and then God puts, puts them over into the hands of their enemies, but God remembers. And we see this in Psalm 106, verses 43 through 48. Many times he, the Lord, delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and showed compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And he caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So here's this prayer of deliverance that in the midst of this prayer of deliverance is appealing to God's memory. Why? Because God, as we see throughout the story of Scripture, has a merciful memory. God has a merciful memory. He remembers the covenant that he's made, but it also talks about what he forgets the sins and the iniquities of his people. God remembers what he's promised to do, and because God's memory is merciful, we can trust and have hope that he will do what he's promised to do. So Zechariah, as he's including these images from other psalms, is wanting to connect the dots of what God is doing in Jesus and in the birth of John as this moment to say, what is taking place now? is a part of God's sovereign mercy. Things are being put together in such a way that we can see that God is in fact continuing to do what he promised he will do. And so this is good news, particularly for those who are waiting, suffering, longing, desiring. Imagine Zechariah who for however long, nine months or more, has been quiet and unable to speak, which is just a moment in time of all of the time that he and the people of Israel have been waiting for God to do something. And God is beginning to do something. And Zechariah is beginning to see what God is up to and is wanting to connect those dots. And so this is good news for those of you who are waiting, waiting for God to intrude in your life, in the life of the person you love who just needs so desperately for God to act. Intrude in the world, in the broken moments and places of the world where violence gets the final word. But then we say, does it? No. God, do something. It's also good news for those who perhaps are in a place in life and you look back and you think, wow, all that wasted time. Do you ever find yourself there? Man, all that time wasted. But in God's sovereign mercy, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. The pieces of our lives 
somehow in God's grand story that he's telling, moves in a direction where we can say with confidence that God wastes nothing. There is nothing about your life, there is nothing about your suffering, there is nothing about your mistakes, there is nothing about all of the things in your life you wish you could do away with that is wasted. In the goodness and mercy of God, God works things out for his good and purposes. And that doesn't mean that life is easy. And it doesn't mean that we won't face things that we wish we didn't face. What it means is that we can have a, a, a hope in a God who is with us in our waiting. And the song, Zechariah, speaks to the sovereign mercy of God that says, even in the waiting, you can trust and have hope that God is somehow working. Delayed gratification. Again, do you just want to come up here? you just want to preach? I mean, honestly, you feel like... This is, just, this is just a footnote to, I think, the beauty, the beauty that, that you gave to us, Ursula. Secondly, God's redemptive mercy. So we see God's sovereign mercy, but God's mercy is also redemptive. Again, if you look down Luke chapter 1, verses 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has spoken favorably on his people and redeemed them. Redemption and rescue are connected. Verse 71, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. So God's redemptive mercy includes rescue, that the people of Israel would be rescued. Again, this is good news for people who are being occupied by an empire, that they would be rescued from an empire which is the story of Israel over and over and over again, of people needing to be rescued by God from the empire they are oppressed by. I mean, this is echoing Exodus 2, and the story of the Exodus, of when God rescues his people. But the way that God is moved to act, if you look at verse 23 through 24, I think it's up here. After a long time the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. This taking notice, this compassionate, merciful notice, is what moves God to act, to bring down the empire, and to rescue Israel, and to take them through the Red Sea, so that they might then go to be people who are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and to worship God without fear, which is precisely what Zechariah says. But God's redemptive mercy includes rescue. And this is good news for the people of Israel. This is good news for us. But as the song continues, we also see that this redemption includes forgiveness. Look at verse 77. We'll start in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, speaking to John at this point, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this redemption includes forgiveness. 
this movement from those people who were in darkness into light, a movement from those people who were in bondage by their enemies to relief and to freedom. Reminiscent of Psalm 130, which says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. So God's redemptive mercy means forgiveness from our sins. As a person whose life is wrapped up in sin in ways that I am aware of and that I am not aware of, this is good news for me. In a world that has been in bondage or is in bondage and is wrapped up in sin, it is good news for the world. This is good news for those of you who can't imagine any sort of relief or another way forward other than the spiral you're living in. This is good news for you. Because God's redemptive mercy means that there is a way beyond it. God's redemptive mercy means that wherever you find yourself and in the ways that you wish you were not enslaved to that which you are enslaved to, the mercy of God wants to rescue you from that, wants to forgive you from the ways that you find yourself living. He wants to forgive you even when you can't find or muster up the the strength and courage to forgive yourself. God's redemptive mercy means forgiveness. And Zechariah knows this. Forgiveness for the people of Israel who've rebelled time and time again, even despite God's rescue, time and time again. They go their own way. These people need forgiveness, and Zechariah knows in this intrusion into history by God himself and the person of Jesus there is possibility. And it's because of that forgiveness that redemption then leads to transformed lives. It's such a beautiful moment in this song. When it says the oath in verse 73 that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. I love that moment. That this redemption and rescue from God, this forgiveness of sins, is so that we might then be freed to serve God without fear. How much of your serving God or my serving God or our serving God is because of fear? Fear of, of what God will do if you don't or fear of what God will do if, if somehow you do it poorly. No, we've been rescued and redeemed so that we do not have to be afraid but we live lives so often marked by fear. It is why we consume, it is why we distract ourselves, it is why we get wrapped up in the things that we're wrapped up in, because we are a people who are afraid. And God said, I have come so that you would be free from that fear. So my, my friends, if you are a person who's walked in here this morning in any sort of fear, fear of God, that is not God. Fear of others? Let God's words be more true than whatever words you might hear from other people. 
fear of yourself, let God's love for you free you from bondage to even the things that you speak to yourself. I mean, God's rescue, his mercy, his redemption is so that we might be a people who live transformed lives. And that transformation means serving God, responding to God, obeying God, trusting God, not out of, not out of compulsion, not out of fear, but out of possibility and wonder and invitation. That's the God Zechariah is referring to in this prophecy. Is that the good news that you need to hear this morning? That God rescues, that God forgives, and in his mercy, he's redeemed. There's a Carmelite nun. I love reading Carmelite nuns. Um, uh, you may not know that. But Ruth Burroughs is this remarkable person who talks a lot about the Christian life, but she, and she talks a lot about the different res- ways we resist perhaps moving toward God. And she offers this picture of God that I think is helpful as we think about moving toward God. Um, it says, I'm sure that what God longs for us to do is never to stop looking in his compassionate eyes. I'm sure that what God longs for us to do is to never stop looking in his compassionate eyes. When you imagine looking at God, do you imagine looking into into the eyes of of a God who's compassionate? Or maybe a different question would be, what do the eyes of God look like to you when you imagine yourself looking at God? That probably tells you a lot about your spiritual life. So I'd ask you to consider that, but consider that the God whose eyes are merciful and compassionate is the God that we have been invited to look upon and to never stop. I love that, to never stop looking in his compassionate eyes. So again, this is good news for us who are sinners, for the world who's enveloped by sin. And then finally, God's guiding mercy. So the way that this song moves toward is this sense of of there's this freedom, there's this rescue, uh, that we've been rescued because God has remembered his covenant that all of history is working out for his good so that we can then be freed to worship him in fear, but then to be a people who are guided, guided from darkness to light, the end, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, this is verse 79, 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace because what God is after is to be a God who leads us. I mean, what we will see is that the person of Jesus is a person who says, come follow me, and we live and move and walk in his ways. And then we discover a life that is so much more remarkable than we could have imagined. It's the way of peace. I just want to read you some of these moments in, in Old Testament scriptures that, that, that Zechariah is pulling from of this idea that people in darkness being brought and guided into places of light. Isaiah 9-2 says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Isaiah 42, 6-7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Listen to this image. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. 
I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. So here this Zechariah is, is speaking of this God who has revealed himself through other prophecies, through other ways of being in the people of Israel as this, guide, as this God who is guiding a people from darkness to light. And that is good news for those of us who are wanderers. That is good news for those of us who find ourselves in a world where it just seems like we are just wandering around, not knowing where to go or not knowing what to do. But Zechariah speaks of a God who in his mercy wants to guide and lead us as a people from darkness into light so that our light might then shine and be a blessing to the nations. So that in, from our stories of darkness to light, we would then show others who are in darkness what light looks like. That is what we've been given, this story of moving from this to that, from darkness to light. People who were blind but can now see. And that is good news for me, the wanderer stumbling around in the dark, just trying to find the light switch. But that image of God taking us by the hand and leading us and guiding us so that we know where the light is, and it turns out it was him all along, opening our eyes, sometimes gradually, sometimes immediately, but so that we can be people who see. What would that mean to be a community who's able to see and able to tell a story of once being blind, but now seeing, once being in darkness, now being in light? You all have those stories. I have that story. To end, Thomas Merton, he says this about God. God is mercy in mercy in mercy. That all the way down and all the way through, that what we see about who God is, especially if we look at the person of Jesus, is a God who is merciful. We see that in the way that he works and is at work in and will work out history. We see that in his forgiveness and in his redemption. And we see that in his commitment to guiding us. And so here's what I'd love to leave you with, these three questions as you consider your own life. To be moved before God with others to consider these three things. What is your story of God's sovereign mercy? What's your story of God's sovereign mercy? Have you taken the time to consider the ways that God has been and is at work in your life? As this song does to sort of stand outside and say, huh, what are the dots that we can connect? And wow, I didn't see God then, but I can see how he's been at work now that I've taken the time to attend to that. And for those of you who are still waiting, because it's so hard for you to connect those dots, may we be a community who can wait with you.
and connect some of those dots for you. But we need to know it. We need to know your story. I need to know your story. These people in here need to know your story. So what's your story of God's sovereign mercy? Secondly, where do you need to experience God's redemptive mercy? Where in your life do you need the reality of God's redemption to take hold? Where do you need to experience God's redemptive mercy? Finally, where do you need to trust God's guiding mercy? Where in your life do you need to trust that God is a God who wants and desires to take you by the hand to lead you? Man, that's such a beautiful image. And you know what? I'm such a child who sometimes just like bats God's hand away. Like if I think about that, I know God wants to take my hand, but no God, I can do this. I got it. Man, my life says no way, that's not true. And I'm sure your life does too. But we need to just be people who trust that God is a God who guides us. Worship band, you can come up um, because we're gonna transition into a space where we can be praying for one another. And I'd love for us to, to take the risk to be people who truly minister to one another, to be God's merciful presence to one another through prayer. That might mean taking the risk of, of you perhaps have a person in your mind this morning that you might be moved toward to pray for that person. Perhaps you need to, this would be a helpful way for you to pray. You don't know what to pray? Maybe pray that this person would experience the mercy of God in a new and fresh way. This is also an opportunity to receive prayer. So if you're a person who is, needs prayer and you don't have the words, I know this is risky, but you can go find somebody you trust and say, hey, can you pray for me? I actually don't really know what for, but I just know I need, I need God desperately. Would you ask that God would show up in my life? So those are two ways to, that we can truly be um, an, embodied, an embodied way of God's mercy to one another is in prayer. So if you want to stand, there's going to be some, some singing um, or some music rather over us as we, take, as we take part in this time. But move toward one another in prayer so that we might be a blessing, God's merciful blessing to each other.